Amen. Well, again, we are going to be um, jumping into the fourth week of Jesus is Greater. And again, just because of the way um, that we are uh, doing this this morning, this sermon's not going to be uh, super long. The way, not that I'm super long, I'm not long, long-winded. Um, and yet, um, at the same time, I want to make sure that um, we have plenty of time to dig into the Word of God um, and don't want to feel rushed. And, and yet at the same time, I want to make sure that I'm respectful of your, your time. Um, I will say this now while I can, um, but Kate, would you mind grabbing me a communion cup? I forgot to grab one. I'm not, I'm not going to have a chance to grab one. Thank you. So again, we are, I'm not going to go through and repeat everything, but as we get into the fourth week uh, of this uh, series looking at the, the book of Hebrews, and, and it's called Jesus is Greater because there's this, there's this transition uh, of going from Old Covenant to New Covenant, and Hebrews written to the Hebrews, written to Jewish Christians who had been saved, and so he's saying, hey, this is what it used to be, it's not that way anymore. Thank you very much. Uh, and so he's saying all of Scripture points to Jesus. And the author of Hebrews is going to continually quote Old Testament. He's going to do it again today. He's got three quick little snippets, just and again and again and again. And he's taking what you already know this, right? You've been using this analogy of you've memorized for a test, now you've got to apply it. You've got all this knowledge, now let's look at what it actually means. And so again, I've read these now every single week, but Jesus even says this about himself in the, in the book of John and in Luke. He says to his disciples, these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And again, talking to other disciples in the Gospel of Luke, he says, a beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And last week I quoted Sally Lloyd-Jones. I have a hard time saying that name, Sally Lloyd-Jones. In her Jesus storybook Bible that she uh, paraphrases a lot of scripture, just as everything points to Jesus. And she says this, at the center of the story, There's a baby, the child upon whom everything would depend, from Noah to Moses to King David. Every story whispers his name. Jesus is the missing piece in the puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And looking at last week's sermon, such a great salvation, looking at at Hebrews chapter 2, 1 through 9, and again, we've been using this analogy, right, of, of Christmas. We just had the Advent season and our kids opening presents. And, and half the time, they're more interested in the box it came in than what's actually in it. And, and the author of Hebrews is saying, stop going back to the box. Stop going back to the, the wrapping paper. Let's focus on the gift, not the message, but who the message is about. And we've been talking about this. And last week, we got into this analogy that the author of Hebrews is going to use uh, throughout the book, this idea of hold fast, don't, don't drift away, let your anchor be strong. He's going to use this maritime language. Uh, and so that's going to that's happen. Hold fast, don't go back to the old covenant, but hold fast on what is good and what is Christ. And so this week's sermon is Jesus our brother. And we're we'll looking at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18, going to be finishing up this chapter. And he, the author of Hebrews here is going to be switching gears. And so, again, going back to uh, this, this present analogy, that he's saying, now hold fast, but today he's going to focus in on why. 
What is the beauty of this gift of Jesus? So he says, Jesus, the gift is superior than to this old wrapping. And here's wine. Here's some list that he's a, he's greater than the angels. He's, he's a better uh, and superior Adam and truly human. And yet today, what he's going to do, he's going to zoom in and focus on the gift. And he's going to say, now, now look, let's look at this present. Let's look at how, how precious this is. Uh, maybe to stay with the maritime analogy, he's, he's going to say, now, let's, now that we, got our, we're, we are holding fast, now let's hold fast to some ropes. Let's hoist the sails. I don't really know anything about sailing uh, on our honeymoon. I don't know why, uh, but we were down in uh, Riviera Maya in, in Mexico, and uh, they allowed us to take um, sailboats out and uh, it was not like a sailboat, it was a catamaran, right? So there's just kind of the two things, like little pontoons and a mesh thing, but a sail, right? And you had to, you know, move, the thing would swing around, and, and they let us just take it out for free. And so we were like, yeah, let's try it. And we get out there, and there's a language barrier, and I'm like, I, you know, I, I don't, I've never been sailing before. And they're like, yeah, you'll, you're fine, you'll figure it out. <laughs> it's like, okay, here we go, into the Gulf of Mexico, uh, we'll figure it out. Well, there was a big wind and we kept going and going and going. And it was, it took a long, it was supposed to have it for 15 minutes. I think it took us like 45 minutes just to figure out how to zigzag uh, back to the shore. It didn't really matter, but that was kind of terrifying. And so maybe the analogy now here is let's hoist the sails. Let's, let's now reposition. Let's focus on this thing that we have and this beautiful gift that we have that is Christ. Uh, one thing about hope that I love and just maybe the culture that we have here at all three of our locations is that we take the gospel seriously uh, and we don't take ourselves uh, that seriously um, because I have uh, the same misspelling or maybe error about eight times in this sermon. And so uh, that's just going to happen. So it's supposed to be our brother, not or uh, brother. And, and so I just took that slide and copy and pasted it throughout the, the entire. So if that's annoying, I apologize. Um, and I'm only human uh, and, and not a true human. I'm a, I'm a fallen, uh, broken human. So that's, uh, that's that. Um, so this first point, I've got uh, four points that we're going to be walking through this morning of looking at Jesus, our brother. How is he, what, and why is it significant that he calls us brothers and sisters? Why is this significant? The first point that I have is that he protects us. I know I've talked about my, my older brother, Matt. He's five years older than me. And I remember when we were kids, uh, a few times where Matt would stand up for me. Now at home, he, he beat me to death, right? I mean, I couldn't walk by him without getting punched, slapped, kicked. And actually, Henry just did the zero day to Jack. No reason. Walking by, slap. And I'm like, what are you doing, man? You are not going to be my brother, uh, my, my big brother, Matt. You know, I'm, I'm going to protect because I was the youngest. I'm going to protect my youngest from you. Uh, that's not how this works in our house. Um, but, but outside of the home, and those of you who had an older brother, maybe this was true of you as well, uh, they protected us. And, and I wasn't there for this one in particular story, but my brother and sister, they were young. We were, we were nine and seven, maybe. I was probably five, but I wasn't there. They went riding their bikes and, and they went by this field. Well, two, two other kids, I don't know if they were teens or what, but they were significantly older than my brother, if I remember the story well. And, and they, they walk up to my brother and sister and one of them has his hand in his coat pocket doing, doing the pointer finger pointing like this with his, with his hand and says, uh, give, me your, give me your bikes. And Amy, you know, uh, young, starts screaming and, and, and I think, I don't know if she dropped her bike and ran or if she rode it home, I don't remember. Um, but she, she left 
and left my brother there. And obviously my brother had called his bluff um, and, and he was fine. But Amy was terrified thinking, Matt, Matt, you know, died and he got, he got shot and all these different things. And, and obviously that wasn't the case. Um, and so he stood up for Amy then and didn't let these two giz guys take their bikes. Uh, for me, one time, right where we lived in, in Bloomington, we lived uh, 1811 East Lincoln Street. I can't believe I still remember that. Um, and, and right across the street was a pond, but next to that pond, uh, there was a, a Lutheran church. And they had a big parking lot. And this is when uh, rollerblades first came out. They're super cool. Um, and so we would go over to the church parking lot and we would rollerblade, roller skate, rollerblade, right? And we were out there. Well, one day I fell really hard and hurt myself. Not that bad. Again, I could see my house. It was probably 100 yards away. Well, the, the church secretary, I don't know if she saw me or just happened to be leaving uh, right when I got hurt. Uh, but I'm laying, you know, in the parking lot screaming and crying. And my brother's like, whatever. And he just keeps, you know, rollerblading. Um, and, and the secretary says, can I give you a ride home? And I go, yeah, sure. And I jump into a complete stranger's car. Right now, she worked at the church. I'm sure she meant well. Uh, I don't think she was going to abduct me. Uh, but <laughs> she started, and I can see my house. I mean, I, what was she going to do? Like drive me to the end of the, the parking lot and, and, and I could walk across the street to my house. But Anyways, my, I remember distinctly my brother comes rolling right in front of the car and stops. And he's, he just points at me and says, Brian, get out of the car. Right? All right, that could have gone south really fast. But I remember, he probably doesn't remember that story, but I do. Uh, and, and there's something about brothers protecting. And there's something about Jesus that we see in his protection for us even to the point of death, that he saves us from death. And that's what the passage was last week. It says that by his death, and this I'm not quoting, I'm just going back last week, by his death, we won't taste ultimate death, that he died once for all so that many might have life. The first Adam, who was truly human, who was without sin and yet decided to sin and lost that and plunged all of us other humans into this fallen world. He chose himself over his creator, the same way that we do day in and day out. But then we have the second Adam. We have Jesus Christ, the true, truly human one who ends up choosing his creation over himself and lays on himself for us. So in Hebrews chapter two, verses 10 through 18, it says this, and bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Why? By his death, he's now able to bring many sons and daughters to glory. It was fitting that God for whom through uh, and, and whom, th whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Now, just a little caveat. This doesn't mean that Jesus became perfect. He is perfect, was perfect. Um, if, I, if, if I said that he needed to do something to become perfect, that's where you have a little heresy button and you could all tap it. Heresy, heresy, he is perfect. He didn't have to do anything to become perfect, but in order to be a perfect sacrifice for us, he had to take on flesh and he had to suffer. And that's what the author of Hebrews is going to explain. He had to suffer. He had to die as a human. And that way our salvation could be perfected through him. I want to quote Donald uh, Hagner here as he just talks about this idea of sacrifice that Jesus does. It says, Hebrews is fundamentally about the death of the son of God and how it stands as the fulfillment of the sacrificial ritual of the old covenant, right? He's going from old to new. The sacrifice, sacrificial death of Christ that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone, which was just quoted, necessitates 
and therefore is the reason for the incarnation. Jesus had to take on flesh and become human so that he could die for humanity. Christ must have a body in order to die for others in fulfillment with the will of God. In short, God became human in order to die. And again, he quotes here, note 10.5, a body you prepared for me to do your will, O God. And I just thinking back, if you remember just in the Advent season, look at this, this Megal Adar, this watchtower of the flock and how little sheep when they were born, these temple sheep, in order to keep them safe, they would be laying in a manger, they'd be wrapped in claws, laying in a manger, so they wouldn't uh, try to stand up and get away and hurt themselves and scuff something there before become blemished and therefore unworthy of sacrifice. And that's exactly what happens to Jesus, that even in this the deep symbolism of Jesus being born in a stable and laid in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes, and so that way, just signifying to the shepherds, this baby is going to be the ultimate sacrifice. This is going to be the sheep, the lamb of God that, the, that John the Baptist is going to see and says, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Now we can see that Jesus was born in the flesh to die. The second, our brother, he protects us. But I think what probably my favorite aspect of this passage this week is that he doesn't, he's not just our brother. He's not just in relationship with us. He's not just related to us. He's proud of us. He's, he's proud of us. And he's proud to call us brothers and sisters. Moving on here in verse 11, it says, both the one who makes people holy, that is God, triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, both the one who makes people holy. How, how do I earn salvation? You can't, you are made holy. And those who are made holy, who are in Christ, are of the same family. The same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Do you understand? The creator of the universe takes on flesh, dies for us, and then sees us feeble, weak, sinful brothers and sisters. And he says he is not ashamed to say, you are my brother and you are my sister. And he's not ashamed of that. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. Looking here again, just another quote uh, from Thomas Schreiner. And this is from a new commentary. I mean, it came out this year. By this year, I mean 21. I mean, this is like hot off the presses. Thomas Schreiner says this. Hebrews quotes the key traditional verse in Psalm 22. The verse where the story changes. Throughout Psalm 22, the speaker, whom Hebrews identifies as Jesus, pleads with God to save him, save him from overwhelming distress and from the suffering that, he, that is tearing him apart. Now, remember, the fancy word, metalepsis, right? This idea that when Jesus quotes Psalm 22 and when the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 22, they want, they, they're assuming we know the context of all of Psalm 22. 
And this is going to be the psalm that Jesus is going to cry out on the cross. He quotes Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's going to quote it. He's saying, everyone out there listening, those of my disciples penning this, is going to write this down for the church for thousands of years. I want you to keep in mind all of Psalm 22. And it's exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing here. This is a transition here. And it says, his pleas for help are punctuated by confessions of trust in God. I'm suffering. Why have you forsaken me? And yet I will trust in you. I'm suffering, but God, you're still good. Which reaffirm God's faithfulness to deliver his own when we come to verse 22 and the corners turned. Something changes. There's a transition in verse 22. And it says, the call for help has been answered. Okay? It wasn't answered for Jesus on the cross. We didn't get there. But once he dies for all humanity and their sin, now the transition happens. Now we have entered into a new covenant. The call for help has been answered in the psalmist and Jesus. For the remainder of the psalm praises the Lord for answering his prayer and for rescuing him from his enemies. The victory, however, is not reserved for Jesus alone. He shares it with those who are his family members. So we have a family celebration, a family feast. This is one of my favorite, un, like mind-blowing aspects of scripture. That Jesus could have said, all right, I'll take on flesh for you. All right, I'll die for you. But you're not sitting at my table. I will set you free from your sin. I will give you an opportunity to not have to go to hell for all of eternity. But you're not, you're not my family. That doesn't happen. Not for him. He wants us to sit at the table. He wants us to have a feast. And it's not necessarily just us serving as a family that we serve one another. And so it's this, this mundane aspect of standing at the sink or uh, my mom is really against peeling potatoes in the sink. I don't know why, but so, so over the garbage can or whatever you do. But Jesus is right there just having a conversation as we're peeling potatoes. That as we try to serve and, and clear the dishes and wash the dishes, that he is, he is there being a servant right alongside of us. That he wants to sit at the dinner table he wants to hear our story. He wants us to, to share our frustrations and our difficulties, what we're going through. And then he's going to offer us encouragement the same way that our families ought to by saying, I get it. I've actually been in your shoes before. I know what it's like to be human. I know what it's like to suffer. I know what it's like to be tempted. I see you. I hear you. And I know you. He's proud of that. The next, our brother, he protects us, he's proud of us, but he also dies for us so that we can be free. Hebrews chapter two, looking at verse 13, it says, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am, the children God has given me, that God has given us. He's going to trust God. He's quoting here Isaiah chapter 8, uh, two different verses in, in Isaiah chapter 8 here, going back to a, an Old Testament prophet. 
said, I'm going to put my trust in God and here I am, or here am I and the children that God has given to me. And so Hebrews is saying, the author of Hebrews is saying, this is Jesus saying that we have been given to him. We are now in family with him. Since the children have flesh and blood, that's us. Since humanity, since the children of God have flesh and blood, he too, Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery for their fear of death. What's interesting about Isaiah chapter eight, again, if we take this theme or this idea of, of metalepsis, there's, there's more there. And if you go and just read Isaiah chapter eight, it's talking about fear of death. And Isaiah is gonna say in that, in chapter eight, he's gonna say, don't fear death, fear God, love God. Why? Because they know, and the author of Isaiah, <laughs> Isaiah knows that the Messiah is gonna come and he's gonna defeat death. He's going to defeat the devil. And I think this is a time to maybe stop, reflect. Do we fear death? And I was thinking about this, and I think especially during the pandemic of looking at, we've, there's been over 400,000 Americans alone who have died during this pandemic. I think even those of us in this room who are young, it gets us thinking about this a little bit more. I know somebody, anybody who's, who's older who might be in that, that range of, uh, of being more at risk, they're, they're thinking about this. And I was thinking, am, am I that way? Do I fear death? And I sat back and I almost patted myself on the back saying, I don't really fear death. I'm not worried about what comes after death. I don't know what it's going to look like exactly, but I know based on what we just did in our, our liturgy that I have assurance of my pardon because my faith is in Christ. So I know that. So I was like, I don't fear death. What I do fear about is what happens after I die. As someone whose dad died when I was younger, I don't want to happen to my family what happened to mine. I don't want them to hurt. I don't want them to miss. I don't want them to whatever. And I was like, I don't fear death. I fear what happens after death. I fear the, the, the repercussions of my death. And then I sat there and said, uh, yeah, that's the same thing. Because that fear of that side of death is still, death is still the ultimate enemy here. And I had to repent. It was just this morning. I was like, I don't fear death. Actually, yeah, I do. I do think about that. It's probably my greatest fear. Something I need to repent of. But what's amazing is that Jesus, in this verse, he breaks the power of death, of Satan. And he stares death and the devil in the eyes. And he says, you lose. Good day, sir. <laughs> to quote Willy Wonka. He wins. And we no longer have to fear. So we need to repent of that. The last, our brother, he protects us. He is proud of us. He dies so we can be free. But then he chose to be like us. In the last few verses here in this passage in Hebrews chapter 2, Looking at 16 through 18, says this, for, for surely it is not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. I've talked about this before. But Jesus did not become an angel to save the angels from their sin. He didn't save the demons. 
He said, no, I'm not giving you a chance. You chose that, now you're stuck there. You chose me, now you're stuck there. Humans, though, humans are different. We are created in his image. There's something about us that is more significant about human beings than it was for his own angels, his other creation. For surely it is not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants, humanity, those who are in the covenant. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way in order that he might become merciful and a faithful high priest to serve to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of his people. And again, this is gonna have language of Old Testament of a, of a priest and a high priest on the day of atonement would say, forgive our nation of our sins, Jesus does that now on our behalf because he himself suffered when he was tempted and he is able to help those who are being tempted. In my mind, for whatever reason, I, I just keep picturing this table, this family gathering, this setting where we're seated at a table. How's that gonna work with however many millions or billions of people will be in eternity and we get to have this feast? I don't know. I want to be as close to Jesus as I can be. uh, And yet I don't know how that's going to work. (laughs) But I'm sure we'll find a way. But I picture this large family gathering, this feast. And I just picture myself or anybody else sharing, you put yourself maybe in this story, that we share our, our struggles of this life with Jesus. And then he looks at us and he says, I I, I know. I see you. I saw you go through that. I heard your cries for help. I know. And I said, that's right, Jack, I know. <laughs> but I, as I sit there and I, and, I, and I really put myself in that situation, I, I think my response now, my, my human fallen nature would look at Jesus and say, Jesus, no, you don't. You're God. You have no idea what it was like to be tempted and to suffer the way I did. I'm not God. And then I could just see Jesus kindly, gently looking me in the eyes and saying, no, you have no idea. And then like Jesus always does, I see him transitioning into telling a story. And he tells this parable of, two brothers that go for a hike. They both had their gear and their backpacks and were heavy with all the stuff they were doing. They're hiking up a mountain and the younger sibling trips and stumbles and hurts his ankle, still able to carry on, but but he says, I can't carry this backpack anymore. It's it's weighing me down, it's too heavy. And so the older brother then says, "It's, it's all right, I got it. And so now he now takes the younger brother's burden and throws it on his back takes his backpack, puts it on, and helps the younger brother up. And and as the younger brother leans on him, he helps him, and he gets him up to the top of the mountain. And I can see Jesus turning to me and saying, like he always does to the Pharisees, who was the hike more difficult for? Was the hike more difficult for the one who was crushed under the weight of their own burden? and couldn't do it on their own? Or is it actually more difficult for the one who actually did the entire thing the right? That he actually knows what it's like to be tempted and never give in. 
I have no idea what that's like. I'm constantly falling. I'm constantly having to give my burden to Jesus because I can't do it on my own. And he says, and he looks us in the eye and he says, I carried your burden for you and I carried my burden and I never failed you. And he looks us again in our eyes and he says, I see you, I hear you, I know you. So in gospel application, this idea of just hold fast to Jesus, our great brother. He is so good. Some of you may not have brothers. Maybe we don't have good brothers. This maybe brings up some difficult analogies and symbolism. He's perfect. He never lets us down. And he gets it. And again, Jesus sees, he hears, he knows, so trust in him for victory over sin. There's nothing wrong with being tempted. Temptation is part of life. Jesus did it too. When we see temptation, when we feel temptation in any avenue of life, we actually get to say, like Jesus, no. Because he set us free from that. I'm no longer a slave to sin, I'm a slave to Christ. And I get to turn my eyes upon Jesus 